You know what the fun thing about playing golf in a job interview is you're playing with some of the other engineers there and they want to hit a shot and they drop down a brand new Titus Blood and they fire it off into the woods. I think, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> All right, everybody. How you doing? How you living? Uh, this is Chris. I'm back. No putts given. Episode 104 or something. Um, you'll notice that Tony is not here today. We've replaced him with the VP of Product Design Engineering, R&D, all that good stuff at Cobra Golf, Tom Olszewski. And so Tony's out. Tom's in this week. Um, first question, did we make a reasonable trade? Did we upgrade? Well, you know, his uh, his beard's actually looking pretty good these days, you know. But uh, I've got a little more, more experience. But, uh, you know, I I enjoyed chatting with Tony. I think he's uh, good to chat with us. So are you, Chris. So should be fun. Yeah, he uh, uh, he's in the midst of moving, selling his house, doing stuff, whatever. And I want to, you know, pick your brain a little bit, too. I'm just kind of background of the industry your story how you got into stuff you, you have a cool unique story um and we want to kind of keep track of how many different companies you've been at while also yelling at tony so <laughs> we're going to keep uh we're going to put the over under at like two and i think vegas has it at two and a half so we'll <laughs> we'll see um we'll see what we get to and then i want to pick your brain on some of the distance stuff too because i think i think you got a really good perspective um on that we focus so much on the golf ball manufacturer side, but not necessarily the the equipment manufacturer side. So, um, yeah. So, how long have you been doing this, designing golf clubs? When when did this all start for you? Yeah. So good uh, good question for sure. I got started in 1990, and so you know that was uh, I think Tony was probably 10 back then or whatever. So <laughs> I could have yelled at him, but I didn't know him. <laughs> Um, so in 1990, I, I was, uh, in the Midwest, I was working for, um, Alcoa, you know, in the wheel business, mm-hmm. uh, before I worked for Goodyear. Those were my first two jobs out of college as a mechanical engineer. Okay. And, uh, one of my hobbies was also working on golf clubs. You know, my dad and I had torn them apart and regripped them and refinished them. You know, back then it was just wooden heads, you know, so we used to refinish them and, learned a whole bunch of things. And my dad and I used to do that in the basement or the garage, depending on if it was flammable materials or not. (laughs) (laughs) And that dependent upon what your mom knew was going on or was that a, was that a consideration? Well, you know, back then everybody used gasoline to put grips on, you know, so you basically, you know, you put the grip tape on, you put some gasoline on, you slid them on. So, you know, that was the part that we did in the garage. Some of the other stuff we could do uh, in the house, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a good fun. It was good learning. And then, when I got out of college, you know, I was working in the wheel business and wheels are interesting, but wheels are pretty much always round and there's not, they're not super exciting, but you know, it was a uh, part of the fun that when you are in the wheel business, you go to lunch and in the parking lot, you're looking at wheels, you know, oh, look at those wheels and you'll see these wheels and who made that wheel. And so, you know, yeah. that was interesting, but you know, I was a golfer at heart. I'd been playing since I was five with my dad and, and family members. Um, and so, you know, I met a, a, another engineer there at the Goodyear company. When I started, we had started refinishing golf clubs for okay. a local country club. And so, you know, we, we'd take them into his townhouse. He had a basement and we can go downstairs and do all the, the woodwork and the refinishing and all that and get them back to the, the pro shop. Uh, so that was part of it. And then he moved to a place that didn't have a basement. So we're like, 
Okay. Wife said not doing that in his uh, living room. So uh, we yeah. stopped doing that. We started making clubs. You know, back then you could buy them from Golfsmith, you know, who's, who's no sure. longer business. But yeah. you could buy components. There's a few other places now where you could buy components. And back then I used to make a golf club with a steel shaft for about 11 bucks of, of cost. And I that was everything. For 25. That, yeah, yeah. So 11 bucks that got you the club, the head, the shaft, grip, turn around, yep. sell it for 25 bucks, make 14 bucks a club. And, and away you went. And mm-hmm. what were those called? What, were, what was the name? Tour Model 2. Good old Tour Model 2. <laughs> um, I wonder if anybody still has some of those around. I bet somebody oh, does. They sure. got to be, right? They're, <laughs> and they may have been made by you, right? So there's a chance <laughs> if you got some in your garage, um, good, good you, know, you might have some original Tom Olsavsky Tour Model 2 assembled golf clubs, right? What would those be worth yeah. today? Oh, geez. You know, if they were 25 bucks in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe 12 yeah. bucks now, 11. Yeah. <laughs> you know, have you looked at used golf clubs on uh, online to try and sell them? Eh, they're not worth as much as you think they're worth. <laughs> no. No, they're, they're certainly not. And so you do that. You're a Midwest guy, Youngstown, Ohio. Um, you know, grew up, uh, I like, I got a lot of family that area too. My dad grew up in Parma just outside Cleveland and, you know, very much a blue collar, right. Especially, uh, uh, that area. And so you kind of grow up doing a lot of hands-on stuff, taking stuff apart, putting it back together, Mm -hmm. went to school, obviously you said mechanical engineering, and then kind of takes us into 1990s tires are round, but you go, (laughs) Hmm. There's some golf stuff out there. How did you make the leap from that into golf directly? What was your first golf job? Yeah, one of the things I saw, I was in Mechanical Engineering Magazine. It was for a golf club engineer at Titleist. Okay. I was like, hmm, that would be interesting, and, you know, learning how to do that and, and, you know, taking a hobby into a profession. So was uh, lucky enough to, to be a good candidate, got up to New Bedford, Massachusetts for an interview. God bless uh, New Bedford. Yeah, you guys were just there, you know, lovely mm-hmm. place. Um, and then, uh, you know, got the second interview on the second interview, we played golf and you know what the fun thing about playing golf in a job interview is you're playing with some of the other engineers there and they want to hit a shot and they drop down a brand new Titus Blah and they fire it off into the woods. I was like, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> Speaking right? of blue collar kid, you know, he used to find golf balls <clears throat> in the woods and play with them. It's like Titleist. Ooh. And, and the guy's just dropping balls. And it's like every other hole, they're dropping a ball and firing in the woods. So like, uh-huh. That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, still, right? Still the number one played ball in golf, actually, is whatever you find. That's still the actual number one played <laughs> ball in golf. But at this time, so you go out to New Bedford, Massachusetts, about an hour south of, of Boston. Titleist was there, but you weren't in Massachusetts forever, right? What what was kind of going on in the early 90s? Yeah, the whole thing there was, uh, you know, they wanted to grow a club business, and uh, they brought a guy named John Hovlick in who was at Tommy Armour and mm-hmm. said, hey, grow the golf business, golf club business, you know, start building a business there. So we started that uh, in New Bedford. We did a lot of research, running robots, and doing some core research stuff. Yeah. And eventually they said, hey, you guys actually got to start making some product. You know, you can't just be researched the whole time. So Why not? Um, Why can't I just sit here and think about stuff? Why do I got to produce anything? Yeah, every now and then you got to pay pay the bills. So um, John was a, was saying, hey, we need to be in Southern California. That's where the golf industry is, the golf club industry is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we moved out at the end of 1993. And, and you guys know from being 
uh, in New Bedford. That New Bedford's a, a nice place, you know. It's on the coast. It's it's kind of have uh, okay weather for up there. Great um, fish, but it's not Carlsbad. No, it's not yeah. Carlsbad. It's not Southern California. The uh, the Akushnik Creamery. Big, I'm a big fan of the Akushnik Creamery, mm-hmm. and uh, like I said, I mean it's it's a working class population. It's a factory kind of based uh, opera. You got you know a lot of industrial, a lot of factory, and a lot of um, you know well a lot of seafood, right? So you have yep. fishing, fishing. yeah, a lot of fishing industry, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not Southern California. This is correct. <laughs> so you move to Southern California, Titleist rather sets up club operations southern california who was already there in 93 well it's interesting because there were six of us that came out from new bedford including john hoflick okay um there's a guy named uh, r2 was our boss of r&d peter gilbert who's an industry guy a long time we were kind of the four core guys that moved out uh 40 pitts was one of the guys that came out as a he was a testing technician now he's on on tour with them okay so that was kind of the small group that we started and we we added some people out here and Brought in a tooling shop because back then, you know, you did a lot of your own tooling work. Um, so that was a, a small team we had. It was originally uh, about 20 people in the original building. They've since rebuilt the building and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, that was yeah. to move out and start doing things and getting really in the heart of the golf club industry. Mm-hmm. And it's the heart of the industry because the industry, when it changed from forging and, and wooden heads into investment casting, that that business was mostly in Los Angeles based on aerospace. Okay. And so you go from Los Angeles and say, hey, well, we got to finish these golf clubs and polish them and do other things to them. That was done down in, in Mexico, you know, right over the border. So Carlsbad was right in the middle. And it was great, you know, when you're coming from a different part of the country where you can't do any testing in the winter. Carlsbad, mm-hmm. you can test year round. So it was a great spot. It's still why the club industry is almost heavily based here, um, you know, other than a few people. But uh, that's where the core of it is, certainly. And so. Uh, it, it's a great spot. You know, we love it out here. When I first moved out, you know, Palomar Airport Road was a yeah. was two lanes, one each way, and now it's uh, six plus more sometimes. So, uh huh. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting, right? Early '90s, people don't necessarily remember. I'm saying, you know, like investment casting was a line of demarcation in golf club manufacturing, right? Like that was the thing and with the vast majority of that being done in in la like i said finishing processes etc in mexico it made sense to be where the activity was right there was no real compelling reason to to stay out east unless unless you had to and boop there you go so i mean to date right i mean uh, a number of companies TaylorMade, galloway cobra obviously title so on and so forth um you know about the only one of the big five that isn't right ping is still in in Arizona. Um, but otherwise, you know, Carlsbad is kind of the center of the, uh, the golf R and D golf club equipment site anyway, universe. So you're a Titleist for how long then? Well, I left Titleist in 96, you know, so I did six total years there left and went to TaylorMade. <clears throat> and so that was a pretty long period there, about 17 years. And then I've been at Cobra just about nine years. So 60. So you were at TaylorMade during, some very interesting times, right? I mean, what sure. what was what was that like? I mean, when you come in in '96, this is the beginning of Tiger Boom, almost right '97, and mm-hmm. and really, you know, equipment as something people really dialed into and focused on. I know it was exciting for people in the industry, but people outside the industry, maybe not so much. But 
the 2000s, that 2000 to 2010, 11, 12 time period, that, I mean, that decade, TaylorMade was, in a lot of ways, the equipment side of the, I mean, they were an absolute juggernaut, right? And you were, you were a good part of that. Well, yeah, that was a fun time. And there was a lot of great people that I work with and you know, went through, you know, a lot of what we refer to as some of us old timers is, is a bit of the golden age of golf club uh, design evolution. You know, when you went from when I got in the industry, the, the driver heads were between 125 and 150 cc's, you know, um, you know, they were all steel. You know, we went through yeah. a lot of changes in that period um, from, you know, going from steel, you know, to bigger heads and then eventually to titanium and you know, high COR designs and, and, and really big, you know, improvements in the structural design capabilities. You know, when I got in the industry in 1990, there were very few engineers that were actually working on golf club design. Hmm. You know, back then what you used to do, companies would do is they would go over to, uh, to a foundry. And in this case, you know, whether it was in LA or, or somewhere and say, Hey, I, I'd love to get a design. And the, and the, the tool makers there would have multiple designs and said, or oh, I like that one. Let's do that one, and let's put some graphics in it. That's how they did it. There was no just ordered off studying. Yeah, there was no studying of design and shape and performance, and that was a lot of the reason you know I started with a cushion. And so when I was at TaylorMade, there was a lot of that focus too because they had had a history of good success, but they were also kind of uh, in the early nineties. You know, Callaway took them to task a little bit in the business, mm-hmm. and so hey, they said, hey, we've got to we've got to figure out how to compete and how to do better and, and make better products. So uh, there was a lot of changes there when I went through it. You know, when I got in there, they had just launched the bubble shafts. Yeah, um, bubble. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, interesting. And then there was a lot of things after that that were, you know, developed and invented there. You know, some of the – I did the first 300 series. I did some tour stuff at the time, uh, R7, you know, up all the way to to one of Tony's favorites I know was uh, was rocket balls when I probably had to yell at them the first time. So, you know, those were some of the, the good things. <laughs> but you um, got out just before jet speed, which, you know, that maybe, <laughs> maybe in hindsight, not a terrible time to have, uh, uh, uh departed, but I want to go back to, you kind of call it the golden age of, of design in the sense, like you really weren't, like you said, you were ordering off a menu more or less. You were at the behest of designs. Other people had created as opposed to saying, okay, let's take this all in house what can we do from a research and design perspective and figure mm-hmm. stuff out? What, you know, during your time at TaylorMade there, are there one or you know, maybe a couple of things that you're super proud of that, you know, you can't have a golden age without examples, right? Like, Hey, these are kind of lines of demarcation in that development process that really altered the course of the industry from that side. And you had your hands in some of those, like what, what would be one or two that you feel like, you know, you, you'd want to pin those up on your refrigerator. Let, let mom say, Hey, Way to go. Good job, you know? Sure, yeah. Yeah, you know, a lot of them were were a, a big group of people. And, you know, I was on the key front of some of the early innovations there with the hybrid clubs. You know, I was out doing tour testing with guys with hybrid clubs and you know, helping that process. So that was one that changed the industry really, you know, in a big way because now hybrid clubs are pretty prominent in, in many people's bags. Um, you know, some of the first high, high COR 300 series stuff was – was under my watch, you know, running the Metalwood team there. Um, the R7 movable weights, you know, again, we get into some of the other ones with uh, you know, other performance aspects. Um, you know, Rocket Balls was kind of a breakthrough in fairway wood performance. So some of those things were really interesting. But it was a whole, you know, every year we had to challenge ourselves, how do we make it better? And that's what we do at Cobra as well. 
I think Cobra has had a history of innovation there. So um, everybody was saying, hey, how do we make the head bigger? And how do we make perform better when it's bigger? And how do we learn how these things perform? That was really the original reason I was hired was to do research, you know, to understand, okay, what does the center of gravity do and how does it work? And, you know, all these things that are really important that we still work on to this day um, was a lot of that, uh, that history and uh, that, that, that company. Um, but there are also other companies, you know, doing, doing good things like Cobra. Sure. Well, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, like you're mentioning things that are commonplace to a lot of gear junkies now, things like, like you said, higher core, uh, you know, like the 300 series. Um, I mean, were we pushing 830 yet or 822 or were we, you know, pushing over that 800 sure. mark? Mm-hmm. You know, sure, mm-hmm. we were, you're getting there. But now we're talking about, um, I know it's a bad word, but decoupling in some ways, <laughs> CT and core and trying to get values. I mean, we're, we're in a totally different, there's no way you could have anticipated at that time doing 300 series going, okay. I think there's going to be this characteristic time thing and we're going to try to find a way to maximize and play within all the rules, you know, absolutely. But try to maximize performance on all these different parts of, of the face. And you look at kind of what you've done at Cobra now in the last couple of three, four design cycles. um, It's pretty wild. Yeah. One of the things that we know and the, the industry, conversation has always been well there's a speed limit and you can't be any faster and says well there's a whole bunch of things that aren't regulated you know we're not regulating cg position you know there's not a lot of recommend regulations on some of the aerodynamic shaping you could do um those combinations are always very relevant you know when you think of the the f9 speedback that was the combination of low cg and and some aerodynamics you know so those are things that you look at as a designer and say Hey, what are the trade-offs? What are the limitations? And where do, where can we move to make better performance? And so, every year we get better. Now we don't get hugely better every single year, but there's definitely some jumps in there. For us, you know, F nine was a big jump, you know, from where we had mm-hmm. been prior. I think this LTD uh, X and LS heads are both big jumps, and we're getting a lot of good buzz in the market with the way they're tested and the way people are, are uh, having success with them. So, you know, you can still make improvements. You know, I get it that there is a, a speed limit that's been governed, no different than there's been a limit on golf balls and other things. So sure. um, we're definitely able to improve performance. And I think the product has never been better availability-wise in the industry for fitting golfers. Yeah. Um, you see the growth of fitting continue to be very successful. And we, we hear often of a guy walking into a fitting location, picking up 20 yards. Well, that's because he probably wasn't fit well before or he didn't have access or any number of reasons. Right. But we right. know that there's performance definitely out there for individual golfers. And that's the key. You know, everybody plays golf by themselves. They don't play with your swing or my swing. They play by themselves. I own hope swing. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, and, you're, they can have yours. You know, that that's totally fine. When and you not see, Tony's like, either. No, we don't want Tony's. <laughs> with the, the F9 uh, speedback, I want to go to that for a second because, you know, Dropping the skirt, right, and the the design elements, some of the key design elements on F9, I know that you've seen this. I've seen it. There's an awful lot of other drivers a generation, two generations later, that seem to have picked up on that as an aerodynamic property that you go, huh, that's kind of cool. Now, no doubt, teams are looking. You guys are constantly looking at what other people are making. You're taking it, tearing it apart. They're taking your stuff, tearing it apart. 
do you kind of sit there and smile to yourself a little bit when you see things that you've done and put into a design that you know damn well somebody else said, hey, that's a great idea. We're going to go ahead and use that in ours as well. Like, how? I mean, you kind of smile a little bit or smirk a little bit maybe. Well, you smile and then you get frustrated because, you know, our our conversation we had a little bit earlier this week was, you know, how do we get noticed as Cobra as a brand? You know, we've been an innovative brand. We're going to be 50 years old next year. We've been innovative along the way. So I think the challenge a little bit in this industry is everybody is wants to say they're innovative, but some are more innovative than others. Sure. But the whole goal of business is to win in the business side, which is sales, you know, and so sure. even though you're innovative, if you're not winning in sales as much as you want, you have a big goal out there. And that that's our challenge from a business standpoint. You know, we know we have to uh, do some things as our brand is certainly to get noticed and to bring attention to ourselves because the status quo mentality that happens in the world sometimes means that we don't even get in a hit bay and someone doesn't even hit our product. You know, right. we know when we get our product in a hit bay and do a, a product comparison where people are testing it with an open mind, we do very well. But if we don't get in that hit bay, we've got to do something to get noticed. Yeah, you don't have a chance. I mean, I I think that that's totally fair in the sense that, like, as I look back at it, there's two products that historically I've loved from Cobra. One was the original LTD three wood. Mm-hmm. Um, I I still struggle to find something that's better than that, but in in terms of design and and you look at the subsequent big tour models, things that you, you guys have stuck pretty close to what made that you know kind mm-hmm. of a cult type following within there. And then the other one is this year, like you said, the LTD X. Um, LS and, you know, standard LTDX uh, driver heads, it seems like put together a lot of the things that you learned from F9, changed some of the things that, you know, were acoustically not where you wanted them to be on the last one and kind of solved a couple of those problems. And it's like, okay, this is, I mean, if there weren't a company with a red carbon faces here, that one might be getting a, a, a lot more attention, right? I mean... And I guess that, like you said, maybe that's the challenge is how does Cobra go from like gold medal adjacent, like within, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, when you're running that race, the hundred meters at the, at the Olympics, the difference between first and not even on the podium can be four hundredths of a second. Sure. And sometimes those are odd factors like popularity or, you know, other things not related to performance. We see that. Cobra performs really, really well on the metalwood side has historically. Mm-hmm. So how do you go from that to being in the hit bay? You know, so that people are are trying it. What do you do to go from that position to in every conversation? How do you do that? Yeah, those are those are big challenges. We think about those every day. And I think the <laughs> <Sure>. uh <laughs> you know, that's that's the hundred, two hundred million dollar question, right? Is how do we how do we go from where we are with great product to having great product but having much more sales, you know, and that's the challenge of the business. You know, how do we get in into the mindset of the conversation and, and all that? And that's those are tough ones. You know, you have to have to try a number of things. You have to try and sometimes fail and try and sometimes succeed. Um, and, and that's a constant battle of our business. But, uh, you know, from our side, on the R&D side, you know, our, our challenge is always how do we make the product better? And that's what we think about, you know, eight, nine, ten hours a day in every aspect, because these gains we're seeing aren't just one little thing. 
Right. They could be sometimes three or four little things of performance that add up to a, a bigger whole. So mm-hmm. that's what we're looking at. You know, we're uh, we often say that we're trying to you know find some needles in haystacks uh, and hope we can get you know enough needles to to make a make a jab into the market size. Well, what we see too, I think, on our survey data side, we see you know people associate by and large our readers associate Cobra with that term innovation, um, which. You know, that's probably something you guys like to hear because you feel like it represents what you guys are doing. It's not hyperbole. It's not, you know, over nonsense, hype, you know, marketing, et cetera. Um, but the other thing we hear, too, is like, you know, consumers say they latch on to things about companies that are different, like a defining characteristic. You know, I play Titleist golf balls because blank, you know, and people may have a very good a good reason for that. What do you think is that defining characteristic or that hallmark characteristic of Cobra that people that are very loyal, because there's a number of people that are, um, what is it about Cobra that they kind of latch onto and say, you know what, that's different than Callaway. That's different than TaylorMade. That's different than Titleist. That's different than, than Ping. I get people ask me a lot, why do you play a Cobra driver? Because I played it the last two years and my answer is different right. than, than others. It's, well, I tested it and it performed best for Like I just, go based on performance like okay you know really boring answer right but what do you think that is for other people well i think that's mixed like you said chris you know when we look at these reasons why you buy a club or why you choose a club you know you guys are data guys right you're about hey what performs better is what i'm gonna play right right there's a number of people in the industry that aren't data guys and they're gonna play sort of what there's recommended to them or what they may have been used to or again a lot of these are like, hey, if I like the brand, you know, and sometimes we look at our business a little bit like automotive manufacturers. Now, every midsize sedan has four wheels and air conditioning and the engine. Yeah, they all yeah. are very comparable. But why do you buy? You buy because of the feeling of that brand. So there's a lot of people that that drive their purchase decision that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and as again, as a challenger brand, we've gone through evolutions in our history of Cobra over the past 49 years. At times, we were just seniors and women's, and some people think of us still right. as just seniors and women's. That was an identity, right? <laughs> right. I mean, in the past, uh, the Cobra identity, I mean, I think there's a lot of people think of it as a brand for seniors and a brand for right. women, or there's probably some people still think, oh, aren't they owned by a Kushnet? Like, didn't Ian Poulter used to play their stuff or something like that? Like, they haven't quite quite joined that. So, what do you, I mean, I guess that's the question, too, is what do you want that identity to be now? And moving forward, if you could erase people's minds and say, okay, all right, 2022 to 2032, Cobra Golf is what? What does that company become known as? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot internally about, you know, some of the phrases we've used. And one of them is game enjoyment. You know, we want people to enjoy the game. And you could be uh, Ricky Fowler or Bryson DeChambeau and, and have game enjoyment by playing really well. Or you could be me and you. You know, I'm playing with my son who's 13 now. My game enjoyment is watching him develop and play and having some little side bets with him that uh, he can only win and not lose, as my wife said. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's he picked up more fun with the game because he, he wants money to go buy video games with. So right. golf is a way where he, he and I can spend time together and he can have some fun and get some exercise. But he can win a few bucks if he outdrives me, you know. So mm-hmm. that's that's our game enjoyment when I'm playing with, Jose and some other guys here. It's like, hey, I want to beat Jose. You know, there's only one way to enjoy playing with Jose, and that's to beat him. 
so you know that that's the enjoyment there is we have fun we 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 trash talk each other and and we try and win and so that's our game enjoyment you could have game enjoyment anyway but we want to be yeah. the brand that stands for that however you want to play now that's a tough one you know it's not as uh maybe consistent as Titleist has been forever you know sure. about their their attitudes um or paying or even i would say taylor main callaway so mm-hmm. the the challenge is hey how do we get that message out you know we certainly have gotten a lot of credit we feel for being an innovative company yep. and not only in the recent time since i've been here but even when mr tom crow came over for a long time cobra was always doing things uh more innovatively and earlier than other companies and and that was a lot of the history of our brand so it's not just me you know bringing that here or jose sure. Uh, that's a brand identity we've had for a long time. So we're going to continue to be innovative, but we're going to be about having fun. And, you know, uh, our players are really about the ones that uh, we think have a lot of fun. Now, a Bryson style of fun is different than a Ricky style of fun. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it all depends. That's why it's it's tough to pin those down a little bit, you know, to, to really in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, and, you know, getting into the Bryson part and Ricky thing and the tour part a little bit as, as well. You talk about Cobra's history as an, as an innovator and, and even going back again, it was owned by Kushnit. So under that, where it made sense, right? You kind of had Titleist as a brand for better player. I mean, that was the identity was, you know, this is a brand for better players, etc. And with Cobra, we can try some riskier thing. Maybe we can take some more design chances. We, you know, we can push boundaries, try different materials. We can maybe live a little bit more on the edge. And that gives us two brands to kind of bounce those, uh, ideas off of but if cobra is innovative and if it's going to continue to be innovative how do you do that in a way moving forward given some of the restrictions like usga rna etc are looking to put in place or have kind of put in place um how do you how do you balance those kind of two factors yeah, one of them was a little bit what we just talked about. Hey, every little facet that we can improve helps us make a better final product. So that's that's certainly what we've been doing along the way is looking at everything. And we're not afraid to uncover something and say, hey, well, why is it like this? And, and what can we do to, to fix that? And so I think that's still part of the character. But, you know, given the rules and regulations, like I mentioned, some things they don't put tight boundaries on. So, mm-hmm. you know, these combinations of things, uh, aerodynamics and and low CG and, you know, high inertia and how, how you design those is really where we think that's a strength of ours. And then part of it is we've been exploring other constructions. You know, I, I would say there's really, you know, two, two companies have done the most of that. And that's mm-hmm. uh, the guys with the red face and that's us, <laughs> you know, they've done the most, you know, exploring the other ones have done some too. But uh, if you look at the guys in, in Scottsdale, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they don't seem to be exploring constructions a whole lot. You know, they're a materials company than that so that's where we've been uh pushing a lot of the boundaries of things like cnc melt bases or the way we do the carbon fiber or you know a number oh. of other things you know the the 3d printing the the mim technologies all those are really pushing out there to say hey we're going to go explore these and see where they uh where they give us great performance and that's what we're going to use them for so that's been part of the way you work around some of the regulations sure. um is you work in the places where they're not tightening you down to a CG location or aerodynamics in some ways, you know, there are some rules on aerodynamics, but right, there are some right. rules where you have freedom. Yeah. Cause you have certain dimensions you have to work within, right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, length width, height and, and some of those kind of things, but you mentioned pushing, you know, we we've talked internally a lot where we feel like 
advancements moving forward largely coming out of either materials or processes you know advancements in one of those two areas somehow some way um is carbon and the application of carbon particularly in faces like the red face guys like TaylorMade, is that the next rubicon is that something that okay once we cross you know we You said, and then titanium, aluminum, using tungsten for weighting purposes. Is this application of carbon as a face technology the next thing? Well, I think there's a couple good topics in there, Chris. One of them, you know, that uh, we talked about a little bit was, you know, when you see technologies that pop up from companies, um, you don't see some following at times because usually that company that has a technology has intellectual property. And so you can't follow them because they've got the patents sewed up in that area. And in many of these, especially when they're studying for a long time, uh, in the case of some of the stuff they're doing, it took them 10 years, you know, and the first one right. took them 10 years. So, you know, well, you were there for, for part of that, time. right? You were right. there for part yeah. of that. So. So I think that's part of it is companies don't follow other companies for two reasons. One is you can't. Right. Of, of legal issues. And the other one is, why would I do that? Right. If you said, hey, it took TaylorMade with all their size and engineers 10 years to do it. And we're Cobra and we're not as big as them. I don't have enough team between myself and, and Yagley and Jose. We don't have enough bodies to go do something for 10 years and hope it pans out. You know, we have to be a little bit more quick and aggressive because we don't have the size. And so I think that's the other thing. And you don't, you don't, you won't see, in my opinion, you won't see Callaway copy their face. Why would they do that? They're going to go do something else. Right. You won't see. Because then they're a follower, see. right? Yeah. The yeah. last thing Callaway wants to be say, hey, we're going to, oh, TaylorMade did this. So now we're right. going to that. It seems like there's a difference between trends and like universally changing technologies. So go back to the Pro V1, right? Or solid core balls. Mm -hmm. That was something that, then everybody implemented because the change in performance was so drastic, you're going to obsolete your company if you didn't, right? Same thing with take carbon composites or graphite shafts, right? Nobody's still playing a steel shaft in, in a driver um, because if you're a Metalwoods company and you don't offer that, you don't really have a company. But absent that obvious performance difference, we have trends. And so... I guess that's the uh, the question is the carbon composite as a face is that a trend or is it an industry defining characteristic that others are going to follow it doesn't seem like it doesn't see I don't hear you saying that it's it's going to become something you're going to see everybody else do because the performance is just so incredibly different. Yeah, and you if you look at what it takes them to do that, we talked about the the 10 years that they claim, you know, and all the things that they've shown where they have to build a factory to make these spaces, right? Right. You know, we wouldn't invest millions of dollars to make that kind of factory to follow them. That doesn't seem like a smart business play. We're going to go do our own thing, invest our time and energy, and then the other guys are going to do the same. So I don't see it as a yeah. as a strong trend. And of course, they're going to say, "Oh, we're going to do this forever." And like, yeah, they just spent twenty million dollars or whatever it was on building a factory or <laughs> you know setting this thing up to do it, right? And ten years of research. So you know, of course, they're going to say that. Um, right. so they may continue it for a while and, and, you know, obviously we'll see what happens there, but, you know, one of the things that we, we talk about is, Hey, how do we make it better? And, you know, if we could test against them, you know, we would find, okay, 
I don't know if I would see a lot of the things that they might claim in a marketing world. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the end of the day, it's the golfer who has to buy the club and decide if that purchase is relevant to, to what they want to do and how it performs. Sure. So we, we feel our product performs extremely well, you know, in some of the online stuff you guys have done and seen. Uh, it does Our product does very well compared to the other technology. So I think that's the, the trend you don't see. The trends that you see a little bit are, and one of the ones that we felt like we led for a long time, but it was a trend even before we led. It was a hollow right iron you know and uh -huh. hollow players irons now it's sort of a hot trend it you know, is tony the was if tony was here game. yeah if tony was here he would say you know those new forge text irons are the best effing iron i've ever seen best you know, fucking and, irons i've ever seen in my life this is <laughs> tony's t-shirt he has them he loves them there is nobody that is championing the cause of the new forge you know forge tech irons more than tony Cubby. and he doesn't really get excited about things that that same way he you know Frankly, he's he's hard to impress with a lot of those pieces, and he's like, "Nope, Cobra nailed these. They look great, they feel great, they perform great. They're what I'm looking for." And he's over the moon, right, right about those. But that journey started a long time ago for you guys, right? And you know, we had hollow irons that go back to some F6, F7, F8. You know, those were all hollow. They weren't all hollow with a metal looking back. So I think that was the trend, you know, when Jose and I talk in retrospect, you know, about this. Like we led that trend from a performance standpoint and making a hollow iron that was a game improvement iron. The one that we didn't quite anticipate was a better player iron in that same construction with an all metal back that looks like a muscle back. Right. I was like, oh darn, I guess we we were we were thinking, hey, this is really better because the CG's lower and all this. And and the buyer was saying, I want something that looks like a muscle back and I'm a 12 handicap and you know, I don't even mm -hmm. know what low CG is. So that was the one when you think about it, it's like, Oh, hmm, the industry trend did kind of flow that way. Um, but if we go back in history of hollow irons, you know, there was a tailor-made ICW series that was hollow. You know, there mm -hmm. was, there's been a number of irons of hollow in the 32 years I've been in the industry that are hollow. So now it's come back as a trend. Um, that's something that, you know, we're, we're going to do very well with these new two forged tech irons. And it's something we've had, you know, in the last couple of years, even as well, but, um, we didn't capitalize necessarily to get a, a big vault in our iron share through that, even though we had been doing it prior to anybody else. So that's where yeah. I think the leverage of both the brand, the players, the product all has to merge together and, and get that wind in the sales. Yeah. Our boy Bryson. Big, bad Bryson. How hard is it to make a golf club from an engineering standpoint for a guy that not only swings it the way that he does, but has evolved and changed? I mean, talk about trying to hit a moving target, mm -hmm. you know, since, you know, he showed up and it was like, oh, man, we need some single length irons and we need them like yesterday to this evolution of of you know what he's become now how hard is that for you yeah it was very challenging chris and you know you brought up the one length irons that was also a big challenge for us too because uh, originally when we talked about signing him that wasn't really the plan to make his irons <laughs> it was to make a game improvement iron and then all of a sudden we need irons for him so you know, our team is is a little smaller but we're pretty nimble you know in some of those ways so we we can react uh, but that still takes time, you know, and I think part of the challenge we had with Bryson was, you know, he came out the end of the year right after he won 
um, you know, a number of events. And then he says, I'm going to, I'm going to go put on 30 pounds and start hitting it farther. I'm like, really? You're like, okay. And then three months later, he shows up, he's 30 pounds heavier and his swing speed has gone up 10, 15 miles an hour. So right. all the specs of the drivers we had at the time were like, well, these don't work anymore. They're and, obsolete, and how are we right? gonna, Yeah. How are we going to find a new spec for him that works? Um, and, and part of it was, you know, when you think about the distance gain and let's, let's pretend like for a minute, it was a 50 yard gain. Well, if he's hitting at 350 and another guy's hitting at 300, he has to be 20% more accurate to stay in the fairway mm-hmm. because it's, because it's just longer. So your angles yeah. off the target line get exaggerated. So he's got to be 20% more accurate than somebody that he's 50 yards longer than. So that's the tricky part, you know, is, is that demand for I need accuracy and I need distance and speed and all the other playability aspects. So, I mean, is we, that unfair, though, in, in, in the sense that in, sure. to ask for? I mean, like, you know, you, you put it next to another guy. I mean, it's not like you have a stable of guys that swing it like that minus, you know, Kyle Berkshire, right? Um, but those guys, long I was thinking about this, and, you know, Bryson did his long drive competition thing, whatever. They need to hit one shot on a grid swinging like that, right? So these low lofted heads, long, I mean, they're designed for maximum distance, but the accuracy requirement is is pretty minimal, actually. Um, Bryson's, he wants, to me, seems like all of both, the distance and the accuracy, to be able to swing it as hard and as long as far as he wants, but to still have the ability to be as accurate as though he were swinging it like you or me. Right. Yeah. And he has to play the game. You got to play your foul balls. Right. So our, yeah. our challenge, <laughs> our challenge is yeah. first of all, learning, okay, what's he trying to do? Because often as often as uh, Bryson is focusing on the golf club, he's also focusing on his swing and his physical makeup and his energy and his mind. Pro- he's working on everything. I mean, he's, he's yeah. very, uh, obsessed with getting better at playing golf and hitting the ball far. And so every aspect of what we do with him is, Hey, this week I'm doing this. Like, Oh, you weren't doing that last week. What does that mean? And how does that affect the ball flight and, and the impact location and the path and the face angle? And, you know, all those things are really critical to where the ball is going when you're swinging it and hitting it, you know, 200 miles an hour ball speeds. Right. And so little variations make a big deal to him. And so that was part of us learning okay, what can we do to resolve some of the issues? And, and think about this, Chris. You know, I think the year was 2018. He actually won tournaments with three different drivers that year. He won with the old LTD. He won with an okay. F8+, plus, and he won with F9, all in the same calendar year. I've never heard of anybody doing that. And so he's very able to switch quickly and have success with it. And so that's mm-hmm. a good thing, but that's also a bad thing because he can be a little chameleonist from that standpoint and say, well, I want this, but tomorrow I want that. Uh-huh. Or I find out I want that something different. So it's hard to do that when you have to make parts. You know, a tool takes still a month or two. Yeah. And parts still take two to three months, you know, with normal processes. So if he decides in November he's he wants a driver because he's swinging 20 miles an hour faster, it's like, well, okay, we don't have that yet. And how do we go make that? that that's it's not drive through. Yeah, it's not drive through R&D. Right. right. Like you, you can't do this. And, and, you know, I know Bryson, everybody's passionate because everybody wants what they want. Right. And they want it yesterday. Um, and people have those perspectives, but you know, from an R and D standpoint, you guys are 
you know, working your asses off to try and cater to a lot of different things, one of which are consumers, right? Hey, we got to have product that sells, right? Otherwise, not business. Right. We got to have product that supports our tour staff, whether it's, you know, I said Ricky, you have, you know, obviously Lexi, you have a variety of people. And then, you know, Bryson doesn't mind making his feelings known at times. How challenging is that for you when you feel like maybe you you get thrown under the bus or somebody says, hey, you know, what you did wasn't wasn't good enough. And you're going, well, what else do you want me to do? I can't bend the time space continuum. You know, like I, you know, I, I mean, how, how do you work within that, that place that can get uncomfortable at times? Yeah, it certainly can be frustrating. And, you know, we've had some good conversations with him and he, you know, as a, as a young passionate athlete, you, you, sometimes you say some things that maybe you wish you didn't, but you're, you're frustrated and you, you just want to, to express it and, and, and deal with it. So we've dealt with it. We've talked with him. We've, we've got to a better place. I think part of it and, Part of it is the understanding, you know, when you think of the challenges he was having, uh, and I won't go into too many details, but the challenges he was having is there's a number of things. There's the the club itself. How does the club perform? And we use a robot to simulate that because the robot doesn't go up to his speeds. So we, we have some good feedback from the robot on some things. Then we have Bryson as the golfer saying, hey, on the 13th hole, I swung like this. I thought I hit it here and it went this way and I thought it was going to go that way. And we're like, okay, well, okay, let's, you know, our conversation has been, we don't actually know. We, we, we hear what you said and we hear you. I think I've always said with tour players is when they said the ball went left, I a hundred percent believe that the ball went left. Right. Okay. So that's the truth part. The hard part is they say, well, I thought I did this or I thought it happened like this, or it felt like this. That's the part that's a little fuzzier. Now, again, usually they're pretty accurate. Uh, but in some cases we're like, okay, Bryson, that doesn't make sense to us that it would do that based on, what the robot told us and what we've seen with other players, not quite at your speed, but what other decent players. Sure. And so then we would say, well, okay, go try and replicate it on, on the range with a, with a, a piece of equipment that can measure what we need to measure. Right. And the things you need to measure are impact location, face angle, path, all that mm -hmm. good stuff. Get right? your GC so, quad out there, get your track, man, yeah. whatever. Let's set up the devices and see if we can recreate the problem. Yeah. And sometimes you have to go to the level of a second source, because if, as we've seen in the world today, if you don't trust the reporting source, whatever it is, right. you're not going to buy into whatever the explanation is. So if you don't trust the GC quad giving you the right data for the impact location or the face or the path, right. you know, you're going to suspect that. And Bryson is, I would say he's a highly suspect guy, but that's also part of his challenge to get better. And so, if we said, hey, if you don't believe the GC quad, let's go put a high-speed camera while you're hitting the GC quad and compare those two data points. And when you do that, that gets him both two things. One is it solves his conundrum where he doesn't believe the GC quad, or it says the GC quad is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And then you use more of the other device. So those things are good. Those are all part of the scientific method is you measure it, but if your measurement is suspect, you have to have another way that you can confirm or deny the measurement. So that's been part of this whole learning for Bryson along the way is, okay, can I trust now part of it? Interesting. And some things like this, think of the GC quad, right? It's a precision yeah. instrument and Bryson travels with his mm -hmm. in a backpack. Yeah. So they do sometimes get out of calibration and they do have to get kind of re recalibrated. So those are the things he didn't, Oh, he's like, Oh, I, I guess I should probably do that just to double check. You know, as you go back to the science part, which, which he, right. he's good at, Go back to science, but hey, 
if you don't trust it, let's get the thing recalibrated and then put it together. And now we're bringing the other unit. And now we could do some good science. And I think part of his, mm-hmm. his challenge as a player is this part player is and, and part scientist. So when you're player mode, you're like, Oh, that thing sucked and it's something's wrong and it's not me and blah, blah, blah. That's, right. that's fair. And that's what, you know, a lot of them have learned over the years. But the other part is the science part is like, okay, what was it? What did we do? What happened? Our, how good is our measurement? What do we trust? What do we don't trust? Um, so there, think of the, all the pieces of the pie, Chris. There's yeah. this swing. There's the golf club. There's the golf ball, right? There's three things that you would say, hmm, there's, a, there's lots of things that we can explore with all that. Right. And we've honestly, we've looked at, a lot of the things in the driver that I would say Bryson and, and Kyle for sure have brought things to us that I don't think people have studied in the industry before or questions. Now the questions may not be um, the questions that, that are uh, well, right, I don't want to say valid questions. They're certainly valid questions. Well, not a play. They may not maybe. be something that's worth a good solution, you know? Right. Right. Um, and, but uh, some of them are things that we, you know, we either, didn't look at because we weren't looking at these kind of needs or demands, if you will, from, mm-hmm. from both the guys, how do I hit the ball 400 yards and keep it on the grid? Cause even with Kyle, it's not, you know, Kyle is not like a one shot guy. When you watch these guys, they want to hit the grid all the time. Sure. Because they know that that ability to hit the grid all the time gives them more chances to win more chances to swing harder. You know, if they're confident that they got one in the grid, they go swing harder. But mm-hmm. a lot of what Kyle does, and there's been a lot of feeding back and forth between him and Bryson is, hey, guys, I still have to find it. You know, I, I get the one shot every now and then going bad, but I want to get a lot of them in the grid because that means I can win. He also has the whole, uh, I would say, the athlete mentality of if I could dominate these guys and I get four in the grid and they get one, I got a leg up on them both physically, mentally, performance-wise, and I got more chances yeah. to win. So it, it's not – even long drive is not – a Hey, one shot wins you. These guys at the top level, they're they're as worried about straight as anybody because those grids aren't super wide given how far they're hitting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're you haven't even brought into uh, the equation things like atmospheric conditions and air density and weather wind. patterns and wind <laughs> and things that you know. And for better or worse, I mean, Bryson's become a face of you know <clears throat> this idea of distance. And, and whether or not, within all the different skills required to play the game, whether or not we've gotten out of balance in terms of what skills we require, the ruling bodies seem to have decided through their investigative studies, research, whatever, that there's a problem, that, that distance, the continual uh, whatever advancement of distance, hitting distances, whatever you want to call it, that it's a problem. And and it needs to be addressed, stopped. Something needs to happen about it. Why do they? Why why do you think they've decided that there is a problem? And do you agree with them? Yeah, good question, Chris. You know that's a good topic we've talked about a lot recently. I think the challenge of what their role is is you know they've got to speak to all facets of the game. And I think if you looked at the facets of the game that are saying this is a problem, it's it's kind of three groups. It's sort of the older professional golfers are saying, Hey, that you're, you're letting things go and you're making the game less skilled. I would argue that kids in their rock and roll music. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would argue that you, if you watch any of these events, these guys have to have all the skills. Golf is not a game of just hitting it far. You got to have every skill. You got to putt, chip, 
irons, wedges, you know, trouble shots, everything has to be good for you to win because the talent level is extremely high. So I don't agree with that component saying that's changing the game. Cause I would say the tour game has never been probably more popular recently from a, even without tiger playing a lot because they're great events and they're great players. You know, I think the second part of that is the old media group, right? The conservative media side of the business. And they're closely aligned with the, the older tour players and the right. status quo. The the other side of it is sort of the course owners. And most of those course owners are the, I would say the more traditional ones. Um, but we know when you go back to Marion and have a U.S. Open there, everybody worried that the course was obsolete because of length. Yeah. It's a great tournament and, and somebody won. So I, I don't think, Again, that's the groups that are saying it's a problem. We don't agree that there is a problem. We think the game has uh, been very popular lately. I think COVID has helped people understand that golf is an extremely positive activity. People are coming back to the game quite a bit. We're seeing that growth. Um, you know, I think that's something that is really good for the sport. Um, and again, unfortunately, it had a pandemic cause that. But the sport right. has always been a great sport for a number of reasons. And there's really no amateurs outside, you know, these young elite guys who are obsoleting anything. The rest of us guys, and I know you hit it long, Chris, and you would say, oh, yeah, I'm obsoleting. you're not obsoleting any golf courses, right? <laughs> I, I'm not obsoleting anything except the, the menu at Wendy's, maybe, you know, like <laughs> there's no, I mean, yeah, even guys that I play with that, that hit it well past me all the time, um, they're not obsoleting anything. I caddied in the corn fairy event at our at my home course um, last year, and there are some guys there that I never seen anybody take some of the lines off some of the tees that these guys did, um, and didn't change the outcome. The scores were what they were. You had to chip it, pot it. Right, you had right. to do different things. There was a penalty for missing taking some of those lines um and you know and and some of those things and a lot of people showed up to watch these guys play golf um so what's the solution then i guess moving forward like from a manufacturer standpoint i think you're right i think we hear different groups and they're solid in their messages but ultimately it comes down to the usga rna the ruling bodies they're kind of the judge and jury so to speak so what happens what do you think happens well, you know, we've talked to the USGA and, you know, given them some of our uh, thoughts on the matter. Certainly they've asked for proposals <laughs> back from us. And, you know, part has been, hey, we don't think the game's suffering. We don't think there's really a distance problem. Um, you know, we could be talked into saying if you don't like the elite game, you could you could change the elite game if you want. The challenge we have is when people come out and say, and we talked about Ian Poulter, he said, oh, make everybody play a 10-5 driver. Right. And I said, well, that's interesting. Ian's a you know bright guy, but he's not as knowledgeable as as club designers in the sense that if you look at DJ, he plays a 10-5 driver. So right. it doesn't bother him. If you look at Bryson, he plays a six-three driver. So you're gonna penalize Bryson <laughs> 30 yards and not DJ. That's really doesn't seem fair in the interest of the way the sport is has been set up. It's like, hey, you know what, as long as it's within the rules, you can have whatever specs you want. Right. That's something that we don't fitting variables, is, right? So things yeah. that people are fit around make everybody wear the same size basketball shoes. So if you're in yeah, the NBA, exactly. everybody gets to wear a ten and a half or eleven and a half, twelve and a half. Right. So Ian, nice yeah. guy, but yeah. didn't really think that one through. So are they gonna so I guess you know, you've been in those talks with them. 
any indications from those bodies? Are they going to make some decisions, recommendations? Are we, you know, we've heard 10%, 20% they want to uh, reduce distances. Like what, what are you actually hearing from them? Yeah, they haven't shared any specifics there. They're just saying they're studying it. You know, and we talk mostly to the technical team there and we've had a great relationship with those guys for a long time. So it's very good. And then, you know, Mike Wan actually was my boss a long time ago at TaylorMade. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think he's a good industry vet and uh, very good at looking at a lot of the the different uh, facets of this problem. And you know, I think he'll make a make a good decision in the end. You know, we've given our input and feel like there's not really a problem with the game. I think the one thing that we know is a lot of the solutions that you would propose in golf clubs would really not make much of a difference. And I think this is the case that we made is. You know, if you said, hey, shrink the head size, and then they won't swing as hard. And we're like, well, if you shrink the head size, it's going to be faster aerodynamically, and it won't slow them down. And they're really good, and they don't miss the face by much more than 10, 10 millimeters or so. So, you know, really, you're going to think that's going to change them? You know, that, that's the thing that we would say, hey, this is the reality of what we think would cause this. Now, we we did some testing here. Bryson has a, a very strong lofted three wood. As you know, it's about 10 uh-huh. degrees. So we did a test with a it's a driver three for most yeah. of us, like well, spec wise. I mean, yeah. loft wise. Yeah. Yeah. So we did that test. We took a 10 degree three wood head, put it on a driver length shaft and tested it against a 10 degree driver. And you can actually swing the 10 degree three wood head faster because there's less aerodynamic drag. drag. Yeah. So you shrink the size. That means they're going to swing it faster. And you say, well, there's a trade-off for face size, and they're going to have more miss hits. I said, well, if you ever watch these guys and, and see how they hit shots and how good they are, yeah. the guys who usually win are the ones hitting the center most often. Right. <laughs> and that's that's the guys that are playing well. They're swinging good. And when we see that, you know, we think that most of the errors they have in directional performance is not because they miss hit the club. It's because their face angle or their path or their angle of attack or something in their swing caused them to not present it to hit it good. Right. Those errors are typically way more than a little bit of a miss hit. Because when we design drivers, you design them for, if you're hitting it straight on the robot, you, you design them for a gear effect to come back to the, to where the straight shot was. Right. So right. if they have a miss hit with a square face and path, it's going to come back to the center. You're going to lose a smidgen of speed, but you're not going to lose a lot of direction. When you're two degrees off and hitting at 350 miles an hour, you're going to be in the woods. Right. So that's a function of the swing, the CG, all the way that the golfers, you know, make their swing. Not so much uh, some of the things that they would could regulate that would make a difference. So we think a lot of things that you would expect in the golf club heads yeah. would do that. Now, if you only change the driver, then what happens? Your three would go really far. <laughs> you right. know? And what's a driver versus a three would? You know, how do you define that? Um, so the, the, the hard thing about this problem, if it is a problem is there's only one thing that everybody uses and it affects every club in the bag. It's the ball. And the Ohio PGA did a, a tournament many years ago. I think it was 2006 or so where they use a 15% reduced distance golf ball. Okay. And they gave it to the PGA pros there in Ohio. Said we're going to play this course and we're going to have you guys play with this ball and you got to play with this ball. So they played with the ball and guess what? Somebody won the golf tournament. Somebody had the lowest score. So the game of golf, I think, will will exist no matter what they do, and it'll still be a great game. I think that the thing about the golf ball is the golf ball affects not only the driver, the three-wood, the five-iron, 
every club in the bag and, and, you know, look at some of these guys, how far they hit their irons. Sure. You know, it's not just a driver thing that's causing the distances. It's they're hitting their irons very far because again, they're extremely good. They they're practice, really good. fine tune their craft right? and they're, they're extremely talented. So that that's, and, and look at, you know, even Bryson, we talked about him. He says, Hey, well, if they take, you know, 10, 15 yards away from me, I'll just, I'll just figure out how to swing harder. You know, right. that's, that's what he'll do. Yeah. We're not, we haven't capped out the human component. I think one thing you yeah. said to me uh, before we were trying to, I think is really interesting is these guys swing hard, not necessarily because of the things we attribute it to like, Oh, these drivers are so forgiving. They can kind of swing with reckless abandon. No, they, they swing hard because they're really good athletes. They find the center of the face. They're strong. They work out. You know, people have this notion that, you know, even generations ago that guys didn't necessarily really go after it. Well, watch some old film of Nicholas. I think he went after it pretty good. I think a lot of guys um, went after it pretty good and they swung pretty hard at it because they also were really good athletes. Um, We just have a lot more uh, of them now and people have access to better information as to how to, try to optimize those things. Right. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, interesting one to, I think kind of finagle there. I want to finish up with, a. uh, this is the hot or not segment. I'm going to give you a difficult topic and you get to tell me what you think should happen. All right. So, um, how should equipment manufacturers handle golfers? that decide to play events on the live tour. If they do decide to go over, we've talked a lot about the people themselves, but I've gotten a lot of comments from people saying, I won't play those clubs. If this player does that, or I will, whatever. Just the other day, I think I want to say it was UPS that dropped uh, Lee Westwood for sure. And maybe Louis Usazen. I don't know that a hundred percent, but I think that's correct. Obviously Mickelson went through his thing. What about equipment manufacturers? How should they handle it if and when their sponsored players decide to do that? Well, you know, that's a difficult question, Chris. We are actually having talks about that now with all these scenarios. And and I think, you know, Rick put it very well the other day. He said, hey, if there was an interest in, you know, people with money wanting to have golf tournaments, then, you know, there, there wasn't that conversation, then it wouldn't be something that people would want to do. So, He's open-minded at some point. I think there's certainly, you know, I, I, I can't speak for everybody politically, but certainly there's reasons why you could could say, hey, I don't, I, I want to have a political message there. Um, that's part of it too. Uh, I think our challenge is, you know, how do we make better golf clubs? And so, you know, I think we've tried to say, if there's going to be business of golf clubs, you know, we, we have to figure out, hey, how do we exist in that world? And, and other companies, you know, I, I would go back to, Dick Sporting Goods taking out guns out of their stores. And they said, hey, that's what we want to do. And they they managed their business to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if people said, hey, I don't want to be uh, doing that for some reason, um, you know, we would manage that to say, hey, how do we continue to get golfers excited uh, about our product? So I think that's our, our answer to that one. That's a tough one, though. Um, but I think what will happen over time is the, the, the tours will morph into something in the future that – 
probably isn't exactly what it is today. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of money and because these guys will be willing to play in different places. We've seen this for a number of years and, and whether it goes back to Jack and Arnold originally saying, Hey, it wasn't a good organization for us for a number of reasons. And they changed sure. it. Yeah. Uh, and there's been changes over time to professional golf. I think there will continue to be changes. Um, our challenge will be, Hey, how do we make people love our equipment and want to buy it? Um, part of that is the athlete sponsorship. So mm-hmm. we haven't wrestled with all the answers there with that one, but that's a tough one. We're still thinking about it. Yeah. TBD on that. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll see, but thank you, Tom. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. If, uh, I'd love to hear what people think about that with equipment manufacturers, what, what should they do? What should these guys be, be thinking about listening? Cause ultimately, like I said, if you can't sell golf clubs, you don't have much of a business and, consumer gets to decide a lot of that so go ahead find us on social media find me out there golf spicy let me know what you think and um until then next time we out